0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. It's Myself, Panel Beater. I'm not alone. Far from it. We've got three guys in the room, which is... Well, okay, well, it's never happened before. This is the very first yeah. time. So, Dr. Sharma, Dr. Dilemma and Dr. Neo, good morning. Good morning. It is lovely to be in a, in a
1: full room. A full house. A full house this morning.
0: Yeah, super spreader. I
1: think, yeah.
2: I I think <laughs> I the last know. time we had this many people in the studio must have been pre-COVID when we got a guest
0: in. Gosh, yeah. It's a lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah, remember guests? Live oh, guests? I can't, I, I can't imagine it. <laughs> the, the olden days. <laughs> Yeah. Um, how are you doing, uh, Dr. Dilemma?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Cold in Melbourne. Cold in Melbourne? Not, at least I'm not at Splendour in the Mud.
0: Splendour <laughs> in the Mud. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some photos. Uh,
1: I'm not sure whether it would be good fun or a disaster. I'm, 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 I'm uncertain. How what well.
3: I loved was, though, people making the most of it. Did you see yes. the impromptu mudslides? No. <laughs> I love it. It's all muddy and people are just, you know, doing the slip and slide thing without yeah. the slide, just... <laughs> all like just drag themselves along the mud using nothing but the velocity generated by their by their <laughs> legs. Uh, it's beautiful. Make fun yeah. you know, however you can. Make the most of it. That's uh,
1: right.
2: And I hope that the uh, the New South Wales hospitals are prepared for cholera. Oh my yes. goodness! Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yes. isn't it? there's there's
0: yeah. cheery stuff, Doctor. No fun
2: for you. No fun.
0: Are you doing all right? I'm well. I'm
2: well. I am on my last day of annual leave before I uh, become nocturnal for a few weeks.
0: Is that right?
2: It is, yes. Big change,
0: huh? It's been a while since you've had some time to yourself like that,
2: huh? um, If anyone um, sees me over the next couple of weeks, I apologise for uh, the delirium (laughs) that is caused by night
0: shift. And Dr Sharma. Yes? It's radio, so if you blush, it's okay. (laughs) But the three of us... Dilemma, uh, Neo and myself, we had the great honor and privilege to be entertained no end by your magi- magic magic and illusions. Which word do you prefer, first of all? And second, all well, congratulations on also winning the Festival Director's Prize.
3: Thank you, thank you. Uh, I don't know what to prefer. Magic, illusion, mentalism, whatever it is. Just yeah, making it look like I'm doing impossible things on stage. I don't know. I, I, th- I suppose that's the closest uh, closest definition to what it is. And it was a pleasure to have you guys. It was, uh, it was a bit of a, a dream run. It was supposed to be this you know, nice, you know, low-key show and kind of took on a bit of a life of its own. Uh, and it was... A pleasure to do a show you know, for Friends and also with Friends, uh, the other three performers I did the shows with. Wow, good. it's nice.
0: First time since the pandemic hit that I've done public shows. It was great. Fantastic. And just by way of background, for those who are just coming in late, um, so Dr Sharma is an illusionist. Um, and was um, uh, doing a headline show at the Melbourne Magic Festival just a few weeks ago and won the Directors' uh, Festival Prize, Festival Directors' Prize, um, and it was a fabulous show. The crowd was captivated.
2: I, I must say, I, I've known Dr Sharma for, what, three years now, and I was like, I think I, you know, I know him pretty well. I, can, I could guess his, guess his tricks. I could yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I no, oh, figure it. him out. And I tell you what, I lay awake at night yeah. thinking of that last trick trying to figure it out. Ah, and yes. I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: yeah. was expecting like ten cents to be pulled behind some kid's ear <laughs> or know. something like that. But no. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah
1: congratulations. Thank you. It was fun to be there. Just before we
0: turn our mind to the content of the show, a news item caught my mind. I'm keen on your reactions, guys. Um, did you hear about a polio case in New York?
2: it's um, we also had one in Australia not too long ago. Oh, it was in the wastewater in Australia not too long ago as well it's um, it does pop up every now and then yeah. polio, <sighs> and it's something that you know we will we hope to never see yeah as it was but thankfully it's part of our routine childhood immunization schedule so it's nothing that majority of the population should um, be stressing too much about no, it but it is, no, that's what I but it, to is hear. it is awful to see polio still um rearing its ugly head yeah, in really. first world country yeah. but it is
3: a worry uh, because so much of the pandemic has meant disruption to healthcare including vaccination overseas so we know that there are you know thousands probably you know, millions of kids who are behind in their schedule for things mm-hmm. like polio so my goodness, uh, yeah, what a what a blast from the past, so to speak. Yeah. I, I did see that, and, uh, and I was like, "Where's this? Where is this news report from <laughs> yeah, that's right. 22?
2: That's right. Everything old is new again. Good reminder that if you or any of your kids are behind any, your immunisation schedules, that you can talk to your friendly GP and get those up to date. Yep, yep. Very important.
0: Hey, so let's uh, do turn our mind to what we've got coming up. Um, we've got some dental work, do we, Dr Neo?
2: Yeah, we've had a, a terrible omission by not having our, our lovely uh, healthcare partners, the dentists, um, on our show I can't quite some remember time. the last time. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we've got mm. um, actually uh, dental fame, Dr Mark Hutton, the president of the Australian Dental Association, um, to talk to us today.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Good stuff. Yeah, long overdue getting uh, uh, some dental. They scare the shits out of me, by the <laughs> way, but um, <laughs> language warning. Um, but yeah, that'll be great. Um, and Dr Dilemma, you've got a... Uh,
1: I've arranged a very special guest this morning. Yes, um, we're very lucky. We've um, managed to secure a little bit of Dr. Ben Bavery's time this morning, um, who's, of course, the author of. Uh, a new book, The Patient Doctor, uh, which I finished up reading a couple of weeks ago and I just had to reach out and see if he might be uh, up for a chat and um, uh, uh, I'm very excited to to speak with Ben this morning about his new book.
0: I reckon stories about people who work in the healthcare sector, specifically doctors who have been patients themselves, I reckon there's a lot going on there that's going to be of interest, yeah. Um, And then to bring the show home, we're going to take another episode of... um, Pop Goes Your Health, where we take a look at something that's caught the imagination of pop culture in uh, the health environment. In this case, it's power posing. And um, power posing, simply put, the idea that just taking a physical shape may inform or influence um, your your mental attitude towards it, whatever's, uh, whatever's ahead for you. But it turns out there's a little bit more to it than that. A little bit of intrigue at the tail end of the show.
3: Absolutely. I, I, there's some really juicy bits here and <laughs> some, some, uh, things take a really dark turn in what should be term. a really innocuous uh, story. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. so lots of great stuff coming up.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
2: I'd like to welcome onto the show Dr. Mark Hutton, the president of the Australian Dental Association. In addition to his work in general dentistry and on the board of the ADA, Dr. Hutton is also a fellow of the International College of Dentists, the Academy of Dentistry International, and the Pierre Fauchard Academy, and is passionate about a range of local issues in South Australia, including water fluoridation in Mount Gambier, where his practice is located. Welcome to radiotherapy, Dr. Hutton. Yeah, good morning. So, Dr Hutton, before we jump into the minefield that is uh, dentistry and Medicare, which is the main reason that we've got you on the show, I'd love to get your view on the interplay between our oral health and our wider physical health. Although I'm sure a lot of our listeners today have a very diligent daily brushing and flushing regime that they follow to the letter, it's my understanding that when we don't take care of our oral health, the impact stretches a bit further than just cavities and root canals.
4: Yes, it certainly does. Uh, look, and from 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 several f- perspectives. Um, for example, um, just poor oral health um, and and poor teeth uh, can, can cause yeah, quite life-threatening um, disorders. And so, if we just look at what the teeth can do to your body directly, um, you know, I was recently talking to an intensive care specialist who said they're now seeing two cases a week at the major city hospital of an addition um, called Ludwig's angina, where it's huge amounts of pus build up around the airway, and it, it's life threatening. So there's a there's a definite, uh, you know, direct uh, effect on on health from teeth. But there are more subtle ways that teeth affect general health. Um, it, it's, it's now been demonstrated that people with very bad periodontal—that's well, gum disease—can, uh, for example, have higher rates of cardiac disease, and <coughs> that uh, people with bad bad oral health have trouble keeping diabetics with uh, bad oral health have trouble keeping insulin insulin levels stable. There's a double whammy there because, um, of course, um, uh, diabetes causes poor uh, oral health. Um, it, it has a, a, an effect on, uh, on gum disease, But they've got the double whammy of the of the, uh, the, the, the diabetes. Um, um, uh, uh, making the oral health worse, and the oral health making their ins- insulin levels un- uh, unstable. So, look, there's just a couple of examples. We could go on and on, but certainly uh, poor oral health ha- can have a profound effect on the uh, on the health of the rest of the body. Uh,
2: so, I guess that leads quite well into our um, our main discussion today with the Greens, who took the dental and Medicare campaign to this year's federal election and had you know a stunning result. Um, Now, although the slogan is catchy and exciting to think about, in my mind that is a huge and frankly expensive promise to make. Uh, Would you mind just having a, a quick discussion on what the ADA's position on dental and Medicare is and when you would like to see some tangible steps forward made?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the, the Greens' costs are now at seven point seven billion over ten years, I think. But uh, which, uh, uh, sorry, seventy-seven uh, over over ten years would be seven point seven billion a year. Uh, that that would be a conservative estimate. I've, I've seen other estimates that go up to eleven billion a year. And look. Um, Frankly, it's 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 not going to happen, or certainly not going to happen uh, very soon. I was in Canberra just a couple of weeks ago and, and heard an address from uh, from Minister Butler, and he he was absolutely adamant that uh, that um, dentistry and Medicare was was not on the not on the agenda at all. So that's um, that's that's pretty clear that we're not going to see it. Why are we not going to? It's really it's really the cost. Um, it's it's you know. It, it's, it's a very easy thing to say. Oh, yeah, we'll just throw dentistry in the Medicare. But once again, without having a, you know, an hour or two to talk about it, um, it's, a, it's a very, very complex issue. I mean, it was simple it would have already well been done, and this, as I think you insinuated, it's also very, very expensive. So the so the ADA uh, would, would far prefer to see um, targeted uh, use of money, and and um, and, and, and that targeting look at people who, who are in, in, in a lot of need um, and um, let's just target the the, uh, the money towards them and um, give them very, very good treatment. You yeah, know, we've got a little bit of a mantra, let's, let's treat those who need it very, very well and not try and treat a whole lot of people poorly. Um, the... Well, the group in that community right now who are in dire need are the are the aged, uh, our ageing members of the community, particularly those in nursing homes. And you know we've got a couple of hundred thousand, nearly people in in, in nursing homes, and we've got yeah um, uh, you know, almost that again um, receiving a lot of support at home to you know, um, uh, um, um, to remain out, yeah, you know, just just keeping them out of nursing homes, as it were. Um, and um, the, 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 those people in nursing homes are really, really in dire need. Um, the Aged Care Royal Commission, for example, you heard lots of stories of teeth not being cleaned for weeks, you know, ulcerated now, so... Pus in their gums and cracked and uh, and broken teeth and people in terrible pain uh, and, and and unable to eat. That's an unacceptable thing, um, situation for us to have in 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 our society. So the ADA is uh, is targeting or, or suggesting that we target that group of people to uh, to begin with. Um, the the one of the issues, though, is... And that would be affordable. Um, you're looking at around about $9,500 million to, to treat that, that group of people. The other issue, though, is that those people uh, are entering nursing care um, or residential care with already bad teeth. So... And not only do they have bad teeth, um, they have, these days, some very, very complex dentistry um, that has managed to keep their teeth. You know, if you don't mind me, <laughs> um, don't mind me uh, telling you about my career, uh, I, you know, I graduated 45 years ago, and um, there were no, not, very few issues at all because when a tooth broke in the nursing home, they just brought the denture down and, uh, and we repaired it uh, out the back. These days, people, so, um, due to, uh, due to the, you know, the successful dentistry that they've received over the years, as I said, often quite complex, though, Uh, are now entering nursing homes with her own teeth. And um, you know, I like to call that almost the consequence of success. We successfully kept their teeth, but now they're in nursing homes with those teeth. We have this this huge issue. So, if we come back to to what I was saying about them entering nursing homes with their with, with poor teeth, really the care needs to occur uh, um, before they they reach that stage of their of their life. And so, we would like to see a an, an aged care plan put in place um, to um, to provide them with treatment or provide our aging community with treatment um, so that when they do reach uh, the need for residential care they would um, they will enter um, it with better better teeth
3: Dr. Um, so, yep Sorry. So, Dr Han, I think you've laid out very well the case for targeting uh, the, the dental care towards the people who need it most. That said, just quickly, that funding model, uh, is this uh, looking to be kind of comprehensive uh, funding for all the care that's needed for these people? Or are we talking more of a Medicare model where there's a rebate provided uh, uh, to dental practitioners who then may get to charge something on top to, to make up you know the gap, so to speak?
4: Yeah, no, we, we, we would we would we would hope that it would be a, a, a very comp- comprehensive um, uh, model of care. And as I said, you know, our mantra being that we give very, very good care to those people who, who need it rather than rather than average care, you know, to those who those who don't. Um, the, the it's interesting that the Royal Commission of Aged Care and Quality and Safety actually um, uh, recommended that the, the plan as we put forward be, be adopted for this, uh, for this group of people. There is a precedent for, for what we're suggesting. Uh, the, the Child Dealer Benefit Scheme um, mm-hmm. already exists, and that's once again based on the, on the Australian Dental Association's Dental health plan, and um, where children um, who are the beneficiaries of, um, I think it's family benefit A and B, um, are eligible for a bit over a thousand dollars worth of treatment every every two years, and um, so it would be sort of sort of based on the same sort of scheme as as that one that's already already available.
2: You make a very good um, argument for targeted. Dental care, Dr. Hutton, has the ADA considered proposing that low income health care card holders be included in its uh, proposal for Medicare rebates or comprehensive care? Just in my mind, these are the people who often won't access dental care because the price is quite prohibitive. You know, in Victoria, there's still a financial barrier to these visits for these people with up to $120 per visit, but they could have a, a very um, large impact on it. As you said at the top of the show, their wider health. If we can get on top of their health, on top of their dental care early.
4: Yes, that's, in fact, we, we, we do we do suggest that. So, uh, so the Australian Dental Health Plan that we that, that we proposed or had, had, the, had the Child Dental Benefits Plan in it, the schedule in it, which I've alluded to. We recommend the Seniors Dental Benefits schedule. And that's for the, the that, that ageing group we've already talked about. But we also talk about the need for the adult um, the dental, uh, dental benefit schedule, uh, pretty much based on the on the, you know, the same pre- premise as the, as the previous two we were talking about. So yes, overall we do we 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 do um, advocate for for um, targeted treatments for those who need it right through uh, from uh, 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 people's lives.
1: Dr. Hutton's Dr. Dilemma here. Um, I was wondering. Uh, with emergency departments currently stretched near breaking point around the country, as we're all hearing about at the moment, uh, a large proportion of presentations to ED continue to be around dental presentations that are generally um, inappropriate, or uh, general emergency departments aren't always well equipped for these dental um, emergencies. I'm wondering if the ADA has formed any strategies to assist in alleviating this this pressure on the on the EDs around the country.
4: Yeah, well, the 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 ADA uh, has has advocated for uh, for for better funding of of of, uh, public um, public services too. but um you know really it's up to up to government funding and government decisions to to uh, to take more of those 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 issues but certainly we've been um, we've we've done a lot, of, a lot of advocacy over the years on um, on, on attempting to get um improve public dental services, it's not only, of course, those people who are, who are um, presenting in the emergency departments, and I agree, uh, you yeah, uh, know, yeah, that, that's very difficult for those departments to handle them. But, of course, um, um, the, the, we've, the waiting list for treatment on, on, um, on the public dental schemes, which uh, are yeah, pretty much state-based, are, are really unacceptably long and, and, and
0: um, uh, often, a, often a few years in length. Mm-hmm. Dr Hutton, um, it's a panel beater here A couple of quick questions as we come towards the end of our time um, And I'm sure there's a lot on people's mind um, One of the things I'm wondering about Especially as related to costing and things like rebates and so on Has the association done any research into the main reasons Why people don't go to the dentist? Is it um, significantly cost related? Or is it, perhaps like a couple of people on our text line are pointing out um, A bit related to quite literally, the fear of the pain that they're going to experience. Whether that's real or imagined pain, um, it's on their mind. Uh, what What's your uh, understanding of people's motivations or demotivations for turning up? Yes, yeah, so
4: so, so we certainly have got some idea of why people don't go and, and, and cost uh, costs. Cost uh, issues are, are one of the very high you know, percentages of people not not um, uh, receiving dental care. Um, but um, the um, you, you're quite correct that the fear of going to the dentist is, is, is still an issue, um, and it's it's one that uh, you know we've just got to just got to work away on um, you know um, trying to convince people that dentistry's is not the dentistry of not the dentistry that was done uh, you know. 100
0: years ago well yeah how about we jump on the chance to do a bit of a plug on that what are the big changes um that people may you know maybe they're into their five or six maybe 10 years since the last time they went to the dentist and and times change techniques change what is current good best practice um uh, by dentists and what can you say about pain management for the average visitor
4: yeah, so the pain management these days, you know, is extremely good. Um, the, uh, the, the as is the fear management. So there are lots of ways it can be approached, but the, the you know, anaesthesia these days is uh, is excellent, um, and there are many techniques uh, available to alleviate the fear, from from uh, you know the so-called happy gas that you might have might have heard about. Yeah, you know, some bit of. Not, and nitrous oxide, um, to to drug therapy, to intravenous sedation, and for those who need need um, you know extensive work done. Then, of course, uh, general anaesthesia. So the whole range of of of, um, of um, procedures that's available in in medical world also available in the in, in the dental world to alleviate the yeah you know, the discomfort of the appointments. But the really important thing is, I, I, I guess it's important also difficult for many people to so to roll up and 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 talk to their their practitioner about yeah you know, what their fears are and and their issues are. And, and, um, and then have appropriate measures put in place to take care of that. But all those, all those, those um, um, measures to make treatments more, more comfortable or available.
0: Uh, dr. dr just before i uh, turn it over to dr neo uh, to wrap it up with uh, wrap our conversation up with you just um pointing out we've, we've got a bit of a text line running here and it's really interesting to see that there is a common thread of people taking positions on the cost of going to the dentist and so on so it really has been wonderful to to hear from you dr neo
2: thank you so much for your um your time today dr hutton is there any final words that you'd like to leave us with
4: uh, no, um, just, uh, well, yes, I guess, um, for goodness sake, um, you yeah, know, it's really important that we all, all look after our health, um, as we said earlier in the, in, in, in the view, of the oral health. Is your oral health is really critically important, very, very important uh, to the to the overall health of your body. Uh, so, you yeah, know, if it's a long while since you've been to see see a dentist, and it, particularly if it's from 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 fear or or, or whatever, um, uh, go to your dentist, tell them what your worries
2: are, and uh, but look after your oral your oral health. Thank you so much, Dr. Hutton. Uh, personally, I went and saw my dentist last week. Oh. <laughs> a, lovely, a lovely visit, I must say. How long's between visit?
0: visits? Uh, six
2: months. Six months. Oh, oh, you well. it's oh, the perfect. <laughs> You've
1: inspired me. I'm going to go and book my appointment after this. Thank you so oh much, Dr. Hutter. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Ben Bravery is the author of *The Patient Doctor*, which is a truly inspiring memoir about how a cancer diagnosis led to a decision to become a doctor and advocate for positive change in our healthcare system. Dr. Bravery is now undergoing his specialist training to to become a, a psychiatrist, which is a big change from his um, former career uh, in zoology. Ben, welcome to Radiotherapy and congratulations on your first book. Thank you very much. For those of us who who haven't yet had the pleasure to read The Patient Doctor, could you tell us a little bit about what was the inspiration behind the book?
5: Oh, so the inspiration was trying to capture... Um, a lot of my experience first as a cancer patient and then um, deciding to go to medical school and become a doctor. And what I learned on both sides of that doctor-patient equation, um, it felt like a good time to kind of put it all down before I get too entrenched in the system and forget some of the reasons that uh, got me into it in the first place. And I think, you know, at health the health system is front-page news now. Uh, almost on a daily basis. And so it's a good time for me to contribute to that conversation.
1: Absolutely. I think as as doctors, um, it's really crucial that we we constantly remember that the patient's at the core of every single thing we do. They're the reason that the hospital exists in the first place. They're the reason we turn um, up to work each day. Yet, as you, as you nicely described in your book, um, as a patient, you sometimes felt invisible, unheard and alone in the hospital. Reading about some of your experiences as a patient, Made me feel disappointed that as a profession we 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 occasionally let down the people who are the reason that we do what we do. But it's not from our lack of knowledge or lack of um, expertise. It's rather just failures in communication. So, I suppose now that you're on the other side, um, uh, as a medical practitioner, I'm sure you can appreciate that there are challenges of times and workload pressures, hierarchies, and the complex systems issues mean that we we frustratingly don't always get the time that we really to dedicate to each patient that 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 it deserves. So there's clearly so much room to improve nonetheless, but what advice do you think that you would offer to the healthcare practitioners who are listening this morning about about how they can improve their communication with their patients?
5: Yeah, look, you've, you've, you've just covered so much there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think if, if you can indulge me for a second, I want to touch on a couple of those points. Please. Is that okay? Please. Yeah. So the first one is, um, I went into this, I, I went into medical school naive, really, about where I thought some of the issues were, and it wasn't until I'd got into medical education and then was training as a junior doctor that I realised that both sides of the doctor-patient relationship and all the healthcare provider-patient relationship were hurting. Mm. Um, and uh, in, in some of my simplistic understanding as a person that had been sick, you know, became more informed, and my understanding of the complexity of the whole system, you know, naturally increased. Um, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, that I think that the system um, is, is 100% responsible. It's certainly the biggest factor by far because it is really hard, like you said, to give the kind of patient care we want to when the lists are long, the clinic times are short, Mm -hmm. uh, ward rounds are rushed, and the the wave of patients never ends. But the the, the system has a responsibility here because it's not just about time, it's about rewarding the things that matter to patients and doctors and building that into the system. At the moment it feels like it's bare bones, you know, it's just it's keeping people alive and it's band-aids and all the other stuff is seen as fluff, you know, I've had lots of colleagues describe it as the soft Skills. Um, We're actually, I think, the, the validation and the communication and the getting the patient story is actually the hardest part of our job. Um, Memorising, you know, pharmacology lists and the surgical procedures, you know, is, is probably a little bit easier by comparison because that's the stuff that's taught into us over and over and over again. We get far less education around the, the human side of this relationship, the art, if you will, mm. and the biggest missing piece of that are the patients themselves. So by the time a doctor graduates and starts practicing, they're almost somewhat removed from sickness as a concept. They understand how to treat it, they understand how to diagnose it, but they don't really have a good understanding of being sick. And I think that that's something that we can do better in medical education so that when we pump out those doctors into the workforce, at least they're already thinking like that. Mm. Then, we can talk about, then we can talk about all the system factors that erode that over time. But, but to get back to your um, the, the actual question, I think the issue, it's, it's hard to distill to one thing, right? So, And, and I, I don't have all the answers. It would be really arrogant of me to assume that I could walk in. I'm only four years out of med school and assume that I have all the answers. But there's a few things I noticed, and that's informed both as a patient and a doctor, the first thing is it's really – we have to actively cultivate the idea that our routine is not routine and that our normal is somebody's abnormal. And things you know in our day-to-day work – and it's our work, right? It's a job. These things become habits. We have to actively challenge that idea because I think that's where even the most compassionate person, even the most validating person – Can become complacent. They can almost slip into the routine and forget that you know their tenth conversation that day about a very similar topic might be that patient's first conversation. And importantly, how that person leaves that conversation can actually ripple with them for the rest of their illness journey or the rest of their experience in the healthcare system. So that's actually something that I try and do on a daily basis. When I walk into the hospital, it's like, okay. This is a big day for the people I'm about to see. And it sounds really corny, but it's just a way of like pulling out of the textbook, like pulling out of the algorithm, and remembering that the person I'm dealing with is a
3: person. Ben, uh, Dr. Sharma here. Ben, walk us through, uh, I guess, that, that transition you had from a patient, you know, the cancer diagnosis to going to medical school. Um, you know, I, I imagine that that would have inspired uh, so much of your, uh, your foray into medicine. Tell us about what. what what matched your expectations and what did not were there things that really surprised you that you learned in medical school or that you you didn't learn uh, in context of the the very specific experiences that you had as a patient
5: yeah so that, that's kind of really interesting and I spent a little bit of book the book on this because medical education uh, I think we can forget it's it's rather odd really isn't it it's it's quite a weird <laughs> it's quite a weird endeavor to get into it's a really unusual system um you know I I went in Uh, Not really appreciating that I was going to inherit hundreds of years of medical tradition and hierarchy. Um, That that was the first kind of surprising thing. I was a little surprised at the hostility or the aggression built into a lot of the teaching. Um, That that, that kind of starts with the, the workload and the expectations. And you know, I'd signed up for a big study load, and I knew this was intense. That's not what I'm saying. It's just kind of the way that it's rolled out for people and. And the fact that it's just expected that people will cope with these kinds of demands. And then, you know, you might have the bully on ward rounds, you might have the aggressive lecturer who likes quizzing people over and over again. I felt like that the thing that mattered at med school, and certainly does matter in certain healthcare environments, was. How much you knew, and that was the currency. That was what stood you apart from other people, and that's what seemed to get the most respect. Now, I didn't have a problem studying for the exams. You know, I, I did well on those things, but it it almost came at a cost to, to these other things I'm talking about. Now, medical schools do this differently. Um, a lot of them, you know teach communication or try and teach communication, but it's really quite basic. A lot of the other caring professions have a, a decades ahead of us. You know, we need to move beyond the breaking bad news model or the must-build rapport tick box in the OSCE in order to actually cultivate that humanity. That was the, the first thing that surprised me. The second thing was I didn't know where the patients were. And, and, you know, my medical school, a lot of them have some preclinical years and then clinical years, and there's different exposures to patients. But what I wanted and what I expected to find was patients actually as teachers. So I wanted them up the front of the lecture, elevated to the status of the anatomist or the physiologist Mm -hmm. or the pharmacologist because I wanted that knowledge to be as important to be as critical to our understanding of sickness as all the book stuff. Mm. Because the journey has to be as important as the facts, and people love stories. We tell them to each other all the time when we describe histories, right? We try and collect them from people, and then we share them in uh, in ward rounds and MDTs. This was a real opportunity where we can build on that. We can actually talk about patient stories and patient experiences of illness and pair it with the facts. So what ended up happening in first year is I, in my PDL, I ended up becoming the kind of patient teacher right? So one when cancer finally came around, and it wasn't there much, and we can talk about that later if you want to, but when it came around, like, I showed my scars, and I talked about what chemotherapy felt like, and I described being infertile from radiation. And I, you know, shared my experience of having a stoma. And my tutorial group were so thirsty for this knowledge they really wanted it. and they've had cancer in their own families but the, they didn't feel like they could ask these things and that you know medical school is a really special place where we can merge the illness experience with our academic understanding of illness.
2: Dr Bravery on that point it's Dr Neo here. Uh, Hi. It's a really interesting conversation in that you you get you experience this, this illness as a patient and you're taught a little bit about it by the, the people who are caring for you, but then you go on to medical school and you learn it to a whole other degree. And, you know, you'll learn about um, the, the molecular features of it, the treatments of mm. it, and the, the, com- the complications of that illness. Is there anything that you learnt during your medical education about your own illness that you wish... You would have been taught at the time that you're experiencing it.
5: Mm, that's really interesting. I don't. I think. I think. Okay, the, 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 I wasn't a typical patient in that I had a science degree, right? Mm. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't medical. It was. A, I was a zoologist and I studied wildlife. But I had an okay understanding of how to access literature, how to understand the basics of scientific language. I could get into a paper. I could look at a table, analyze a statistic. So I had done a lot of that reading. Um, during my diagnosis, and I was pretty upfront, and I had lots of questions for my clinicians, and they were excellent at answering them. Um, I don't think I learnt a lot about um, bowel cancer that I didn't already know, but I certainly learnt a lot about a lot of other cancers um, and, and illness in uh, illness uh, generally that I had no understanding of before getting sick and then going to med school.
3: It's really fascinating, uh, uh, Dr. Ravery, Another question for you. How is it? Do you think that maybe cancer is dealt with specifically in uh, in medical education, as opposed to say other diseases? It's, it's yeah, so much more complex in a, on a social, cultural level. Um, how do you think that, compared to other uh, illnesses and ailments, uh, is you know, is taught at a medical school level?
5: Yeah, so th- this was the other surprise, I think, getting back to Dr. Sharma's question. Like, one of the other major surprises was the relative lack of oncology teaching at an undergraduate, you know, level. I um, had gone in, um, and, and, and in some ways, I'd wanted to be- I wanted to better understand my own illness, right? Like, I wanted to understand cancer. It was a kind of a way to get some control. I mean, it's quite an excessive way to go to med school and learn about it, but, uh, you know, part of it has to be that I was trying to understand it and get a get better a, a, upon what my future might hold. There was a lack of cancer. So a lot of a lot of medical schools now, you know, work in integrated curriculum, they're complicated three dimensional helixes. This was cancer came around a couple of times in first year, a couple of times in second year. It was kind of skimmed over, it wasn't done well. And I was reflecting on that because, you know, the heart we learned back to fun almost on day one and we're still learning it at the last day of medical school. And you know, heart disease is about ten percent of deaths. If you combine the cancers and you're right, they're heterogeneous, but if you combine them it's about Thirty percent of deaths. When I started to think about why cancer wasn't at med school, I actually went back to you know PubMed and, and discovered that this is a well-known phenomenon that has been described for over thirty years, particularly in Australia, that our medical graduates don't just they, they just don't have the understanding that society expects of them. Now there's some. Brilliant work done um, uh, earlier in the 90s showed that medical students graduated without a lot of confidence. Uh, Some of them weren't able to spot melanomas. Some of them weren't comfortable with cervical smears. And I thought that data was a bit old. So I paired with the College of Radiologists, the Faculty of Radiation Oncologists, and I repeated this study in Australia and New Zealand. I surveyed about 400 final year medical students across the two countries, and I found worsening confidence and worsening exposure to oncology. And when I asked the final-year students, these people are about to become doctors to rate the quality of education across a number of disciplines. Oncology and haematology were the worst two and that just didn't feel like we were setting people up now this is all a bit academic because some people might say well they go and get that education as specialist and you do right you go into primary care you learn about that stuff you go into oncology or surgical oncology you learn about that stuff but I put this question in there just for fun which was does external beam radiation therapy make patients radioactive because this is a common misunderstanding amongst the community and it can be a treatment barrier for lots of people worried about side effects and um, almost half of students believed that it did. Wow. Now, that's a, that's a gross misunderstanding of a really fundamental oncological treatment. So, I, and, and, you know, this, again, this, this is not the individuals. They want to know everything. Med students are hungry. This is about the curriculum just bloating up mm. as we've acquired more and more knowledge. And, again, I ask the question, are we focusing on the right things?
1: mmm Oh, Dr Bravery, I wish we had so much more time to unpack uh, the, the really important issues that you've you've covered in your book. Um, I finished it not long ago and I've been recommending it to all of my colleagues, but I recommend it to patients as well and um, anyone out there. It's just a fantastic read with so many lessons um, and um, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Um, can you just touch, where, where can our listeners find your book if they haven't uh, got their hands on it already?
5: Yeah, so it's pretty much in in nearly every bookstore um, across the country and also online, and there's an audio book that I narrated, so it's available everywhere.
1: Fantastic. Oh, thank you, Dr. Bravery. Um, Thanks for your time.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: Turning our thoughts now to uh, Pop Goes Your Health, where we take a look at something that's caught the attention in pop culture, something health medicine-related in pop culture, and and take a look at its scientific basis or not, and anything else that might catch our thoughts about it. And this week, we're turning our attention to power posing. Um, already on the text line, that number again, um, 0466 981027. We have somebody who's uh, texted in to say that... Uh, it's, well, by the sounds of it, a bit of a fan. They do it before uh, um, any time they're doing public speaking. So what is this power posing? And, and public speaking would be an example of a time when people use it. In a nutshell... It's when you quite literally take on a a physical position that makes you feel strong and proud. So it might be standing in front of a mirror, upright, um, hands on hips, a bit like uh, Wonder Woman or Superman, and uh, maybe even um, state uh, a mantra to yourself about, you know, I'm worthy or I'm good or I'm going to nail this. It's going to go great. Something along those natures, that nature. Power posing, however, has got a couple of layers to it. So there is this question about its scientific basis. Um, is it, in fact, placebo or not? Um, and, um, as we will find out, um, more recently it has brought to the surface some significant uh, research attentions that have resulted in bullying and death threats. We'll come to that. Let's look at the science first. Um, you might be assuming a power posing position right now. So there is some science on this, as shallow as it might be, um, uh, but a few things uh, that we can um, say that have at least been attempted to understand through some of some of the research. In typical research approaches to um, this um, research, what what researchers will do is that they will get people to assume a power pose and then give them a particular task. That task might be to do something like public speaking, it might be to do a job interview of some nature, um, or it might be to take some kind of risk. And then they, after after um, exercising the power pose, they then determine whether um, some people are more likely than not to make decisions than other groups who didn't do the power posing would do. And... Uh, again, on limited research, this is showing that for some people, it is in fact the case that they they do um, benefit from this. Uh, football fans will remember a few years ago when Adelaide Crows lined up at the start of the grand final in a power pose against Richmond and then got thoroughly trashed. Let's just take a moment to remember Richmond's <laughs> picture um, So it doesn't work all the time. Um... But they've done this with adults, they've done this with kids, and there is um, some sense that there's um, some benefit. Um, they um, they did, in one particular case uh, study with kids, they did it in um, relationship building with their teachers, and it seemed to have some kind of um, um, uh, effect. We're definitely avoiding the word causal here. Now, but what is particularly interesting is it seems that... Setting aside the power pose, it actually may, may be more research significant to that when people assume a small pose, it diminishes their confidence. So, if you are sitting in a room, perhaps at a meeting, um, or perhaps in a social group, and you actually make yourself a little bit smaller by hunching over, or or even you know um, pushing yourself to the corner of the group, or doing something that has, it seems like the negative has a stronger impact than the positive. Ah. Yeah, um, and um, you know, so that's been uh, an, an accident of the research that they've that they've determined.
3: But if this is good, like there's multiple pieces of research going, trying to back this up, trying to replicate the findings, and it's intuitive then that doing the opposite should make you feel kind of
0: worse. So this is starting to look quite reasonable, really. Right, so there's enough there that suggests that there's you know, if not, it's certainly not conclusive. There's sure. no pretense that it's conclusive, but there's enough there to suggest that, um, as as most good uh, journal articles end, um, there's enough to suggest that more research should be done. As, <laughs> you know. well,
2: it's a bit of a chicken, chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Is it the, the lack of a contraction pose that's making you feel powerful and perform well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And and and, and there are some talented researchers who will be able to try and unpack that. Shall we get to the twist in the tale? Of oh, where please. This, is, this right? is a bit I've been... So oh, it, it builds off the, this idea of, um, you know, the extent and the quality of the research. Um, a few years ago, a, a, an esteemed um, psychologist gave a TED Talk, um, and uh, it's available to you there if you use your Google fingers to look at Amy Cuddy on TED, that's C-U-double-D-Y, Amy Cuddy did a TED Talk on power posing. It got massive numbers um, as far as TED Talks goes, um, and among the attention it got was from other researchers, and it brought to the surface a couple of attributes that I think um, is not only in power posing, but is common in... Um, Scientific research and especially the psych sciences, and that's related to replicability. Mm. You know, so a researcher does a piece of research, then they make claims about the findings, and then another research tries and replicates it and it doesn't work out. And increasingly, replicability is a major area of tension in a lot of disciplines, um, but it certainly came to the surface here in um, power posing. Amy Cuddy. To cut a long story short, um, ultimately became the target of some really significant bullying and including death threats. But but here's the thing, right? This is absolutely terrible. And the the funny
3: thing is is here that PowerPosing, in and of itself, uh, of all the pop science things we've we've kind of, uh, pop health things we've covered, it's totally free.
4: Like it's something that, that you,
3: right. there's nothing that you can necessarily sell to anyone, right? right. And yet, I think what we, a lot of the the kind of anger and ire that was um, targeted towards uh, this researcher, Professor Cuddy was because um, of this other kind of industrial complex that, that exists in pop health, which is she spoke on the, on the TED circuit, and from there yeah. you go, you, you write the book, you you sell workshops, you're getting paid. You know, especially American money for, on the speaking circuit and workshop circuit is like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm. and I and I kind of go, you know, I can imagine the research community is going. Well, not only is this likely not true, this person off the back of this is making, you know, heaps and heaps and heaps more money than I'll ever make in my entire life. Yep. You can just imagine what that does to your highly competitive, toxic colleagues in yeah. that uh, in, in that
0: in the academic uh, industry. Well, that's right. That's right. So she actually um, had a position at Harvard that she no longer holds. Um, So there was some significant... She was benefiting in dollar terms from getting on the speaking circuit and and talking about it. You can imagine all the corporate professional development sessions that she must have got to. You know,
2: loving it. (laughs) It's intriguing, though, because this isn't actively harmful. There's nothing in power posing that's going to detriment your health, yet... There's plenty of other topics that we've covered, <laughs> which are expensive, yes, yeah. and will actually actively harm you, and they don't get nearly get the uh, the amount of death threats. Not saying that you should go and uh, <laughs> go through our go through our records and attack Goop, for example, yeah. but you know, it's just saying that it's an interesting mentality around this this uh, very scientific field that we mm. don't. Um, we don't have a lot of
1: light on. Where is the anger coming from? Who is it coming from, rather? From, from, from
0: academic academics.
1: colleagues. From other academic yeah. colleagues. I think yeah.
3: this is more about academia wow. than, than oh, yeah. <laughs> anything. Um, I think that search for the truth and asking for replicability is totally fine. But, you know, it's, it almost takes guts to call out someone in another industry, but in your own house, you know, yeah. you can start to yeah. you know, push out your chest and...
0: That's right. I, like I, a bully. Looking for the glass half full, we want our scientists to be really rigorous before they make um, bold claims about what... What works, what doesn't. But in the process of holding them to account, we don't want to demotivate them mm. from asking uh, curious questions, especially if things are getting into the pop realm. So, you know, um, uh, if, um, uh, what's her name from Goop? Uh, <laughs> Gets get, get <laughs> hold of yeah. um, power posing, then all of a sudden it takes on a life of its own outside of the scientific mm-hmm. realm, right? So we do want to get, keep um, encouraging a scientific basis for all these claims, um, but otherwise um, it could get out of control. And I've just seen the time, Dr Sharma, Dr Dilemma, and Dr Neo. Thanks for your um, company uh, this morning. Thanks uh, to the company of all of our listeners and the fine people who've been getting uh, online to the uh, text line. Fabulous. We'll big thanks to Ben Bravery talking to us about his book the doctor the patient doctor uh, dr mark hutton from the australian dental association um, it was in to um, talk to us about all things dental hi this is panel beater thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.